Please do turn back to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And today we will make a start on the next big section of this letter, which is undeniably a pretty tricky passage in all sorts of ways. I know one or two of you have already been asking about it and waiting for some answers. It's a passage we want to learn to embrace and allow to shape us rather than just one we want to explain or defend, isn't it? As all the Bible is. So I think it will probably take us two weeks looking at verses 2 to 16. And if at the end of that, you're still confused, ask the Bible group and they'll sort you out. Um, This week, to remind us where we've been, because it's been a little while, hasn't it? A few weeks since we're in this letter. And to remind us what this follows straight on from, we'll begin by reading the end of verse 10 which we've printed for you in the the handouts there. Chapter 10, from verse 21. So in summary of what Paul's been saying to them, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I, Paul that is, try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you do remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, that is, the body of Christian teaching Paul had handed down to them, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a woman will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a woman to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a woman ought to have an authority on or over her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as the woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. Her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice. And nor do the churches of God. Well, let's ask for our Father's help, and then we'll dive in. Loving Father, you are a loving Father. You are good and perfect and true, and we know that every word from your mouth is good 
and perfect and true. So help us to love and understand and embrace all that you have to say to us, however strange and difficult we may find it at first. By your Spirit, would you be at work in us. Amen. Well, thank the Lord the days are gone, and hopefully for good, when we could watch church on a screen in our boxer shorts, and no one would be any the wiser. But as soon as human beings gather like this, we're faced with decisions about how. We are relational creatures, aren't we? Human society is an incredibly complex, messy, beautiful thing. From the moment you bring us together, we begin communicating. Before we even open our mouths, we're sending signals to one another about who we are, how we relate, what we've come here to do. And our brains begin computing that whole unique, intricate web of signals for us before we've even had our morning coffee. As we stand in front of the wardrobe, or in my case, the floor drobe, and we decide what it is we're going to wear. I'm wearing a tie today. I haven't worn one all week. I don't wear it when I walk the dog or when I sit in the study or when I hop onto Zoom because you never wear it for ordinary things, do you? But this morning wasn't an ordinary day. This morning was a Sunday, the day the world changes, the day the dead come to life, the day we meet in person with the almighty God. And so in a few split seconds, as I got dressed for church, my little brain had to process more calculations than I ever thought possible, as all of us do every day, and decide, what clothes would be most appropriate in our culture while I stand up here as a minister of the gospel to communicate in a teeny but significant way the enormity of what's happening right now? And then probably after I go through all of that mental arithmetic, one of the kids will say the tie's horrendous and I have to go and change it because things as simple as what we wear are very communicative. They communicate what we want to say, and they might also say all sorts of things we don't want to say. Now, all of that to say, getting dressed for church is a minefield, isn't it? So aren't you glad, you women at least, that here are 15 straightforward verses in the Bible to make it all so simple for you. All you have to do is slap on a hat and you're all sorted except I look around now, and I see a lot of godly women who I know love their Bibles and are utterly committed to obedience, even when it's inconvenient or hugely countercultural. And I think I'm right that all of you are brazenly bearing your heads this afternoon. So what's going on? Well, there's no denying this is a tricky, tricky passage in all sorts of different ways. There are one or two verses here that are just very hard grammatically to understand. There's a lot that's left unsaid, a lot we wish was spelt out in more detail. And of course, there's some stuff which is perfectly easy to understand, but a lot harder for us to hear. Things our culture is running in the other direction from with all its might. So it's a tricky passage on all sorts of different levels, isn't it? About as tricky as they come. But at the same time, I would suggest that's an illustration of how when it comes to what God has chosen to reveal, his word is actually remarkably clear. 
I hope if you're relatively new to us, if you're listening in, you know by now at least this one thing about the people sitting around you. We are not a church who try to pick and choose what we believe from the Bible. We don't play the it's only cultural card whenever there's something we don't like, but insist on literalism when we secretly approve of it. I hope you know that about us by now. We want to be people who search our own hearts as we read the scriptures and submit to what God says, wherever it might take us. And so clearly here in this room, there are lots of sincere, intelligent Christians who've done that and come to the conclusion that this is not fundamentally a passage about women's fashion. He doesn't tell women in our culture exactly what to wear on their heads any more than he helps me choose a tie. In fact, it's not even a passage about women. Paul is challenging all of us. No, this is fundamentally, as clearly a lot of us have recognized already, this is fundamentally a passage about hearts, not hats. And you see that, I think, most clearly if you slot this paragraph back into the letter that it came from, Paul has been making a sustained argument right through the book about what it looks like for the cross of Christ to define the church. He's warned the Corinthians that they can use the rights and the gifts they've been given in Jesus in different ways. They can cling on to them to promote themselves or they can lay them down in love to promote the gospel. And that, he said, is the measure of true maturity, following Paul as he follows Jesus. We're looking at a passage this week that flows right on from what came before. There's no break. There's no chapter marks in the Greek Bible. So chapter 10, verse 31, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to anyone. Do everything to win the world for the glory of God. And now what is the key word of our passage? It's not hat or headship or authority or submission. Most of those words aren't even used today. No, the key word, once again, is glory. That's the one that comes three times alongside its opposite, all sorts of words about giving offense, dishonor, disgrace, shame. You see, fundamentally, this is a passage about hearts, not hats. Whether we are male or female, this is part of how we lay down ourself and bring glory to our head, our Lord. Now, there are applications here that are clearly bound up in first century Greco-Roman culture. Verse 4, every man who prays with his head covers dishonors Christ. Well, John Calvin took a thoroughly conservative view on manhood and womanhood, and yet he would stand in the pulpit with a cap on his head. And that clearly wasn't a sign of shameful effeminacy, at least not in 16th century Geneva. He wasn't bringing scandal on the church before a watching world like the Corinthians seemed to be doing. No, what would be foolish in his words was catching your death because of the cold. And so clearly this is a passage with important things to say to all people in every time, 
even to us now, and yet it's applied to them then and to the exact cultural issue they needed to be challenged on. And that is always the case in the Bible. It's not something unique to the words we're looking at today. Every Bible book is written to specific people in a specific time. And so it's not a slippery slope to work hard at understanding why he said it this way to them. It is a slippery slope, though, to use that as an excuse to relativize away the fundamental message. So we do want to be careful. Paul's message here is rooted in much deeper, less time-bound things, arguments made from creation, from why we were made, from what it is to be human. So let's pray then that as we work through this passage together as a church, we can do more than just explain the message. This is something we want to love and actively embrace as Christian people, because this is gospel truth coming to us from the mouth of a good God. And I think realistically, that might take us a bit more time than usual to get there with this passage. It's one that we want to apply carefully and deeply, and there's a lot it has to say about the way our culture thinks about gender and the reasons we do things the way we do here in church. But to get into those things helpfully, I think we've probably got to give it more than one quick Sunday. So my hope today is just to clear a little bit of the ground so that together we can be thinking and praying over these things as a church. And then next week, we'll look a little more detail into the verses and have some more time to think through the implications. And we could skip over all of this and hammer straight into the text, but I think actually it helps us sometimes to be honest about things in the Bible that are hard to understand. There are things that are hard. I have spent longer than I ever thought possible, poring over individual Greek words and reading material from previous centuries and listening to all sorts of voices from our own who are clearly all listening to each other and copying each other. It's a hard passage. All preachers find that. And most of that sweat, I hope, will never be something that has to see the light of day in a sermon. But there's a lot still after all of that that I think we can't know for sure about these words. There's an awful lot in a text like this that we want to know, but we simply can't know. And it's good to be honest about that. God has given us everything we need to know. But we're listening here to one half of a conversation between an apostle and a church with a shared cultural understanding. It's just helpful sometimes to recognize that it's always true but we need to be upfront sometimes, partly because it helps us to read our Bibles. As young Christians, we're going to find things like this that we struggle to understand. We don't know why it's said that way. It does us no harm to work through those things together. But also my hope is that if we're upfront and honest about the things we don't know about this passage, it should actually help us later on. We want to know when we come to more detailed application, that what we're saying is legitimate and it's sincere and it's persuasive. We want to be sure, don't we? What we don't know ought to make us a little humble when it comes to some areas of application. 
But I think also it ought to make us go a little deeper when it comes to others. Sometimes preachers very assertively rule out whole swathes of life that I think this passage ought to speak into based on what they haven't realized are actually some massive assumptions about the text. So in that spirit, here are four known unknowns that I want us to hold humbly in the back of our minds while this text gets to work on us as a church family. And number one is actually fairly superficial, I think, but it's the sort of thing that worries us when we read a passage like this. Hats or hair? What's he talking about? The truth is we just can't know with absolute certainty what sort of coverings Christians would wear in the first century and exactly which Christians would wear them. We get quite a bit of help from Corinthian statues that survive that period, and people have done a lot of good work on that, but the Greek text just isn't very clear. It seems to me like Paul is talking here about something you would pull up over your head, but there are at least legitimate arguments that actually he's talking about hairstyles, not hats. It's at least a possibility. And right away, that alerts us to how hard it is to follow their specific applications of this message. Sometimes you'll meet Christian women who are convinced in all sincerity that this passage tells them they have to wear a hat in public worship. And I think if their conscience tells them that, then we should honor those women and their sincerity. The very last thing we should do is mock them or look down on them. But it's not how I think this passage is binding on Christians today, not least because there's no certain way to pin down a direct parallel that communicates the same thing in our culture as whatever these coverings did in theirs. Number two, women or wives. We can't know with absolute certainty when Paul's talking here about men and women in general, and when he's talking about husbands and wives specifically, and depending on what Bible translation you've got in front of you now, you might have found that a bit confusing as we read. The problem is that Greek uses the same word for both, man and husband, woman and wife. So is he talking here to all women or just to married women? If you've got an NIV in front of you, I know some of you have, I think they've been far more helpful in translating it consistently. They've gone for men and women throughout, which is just the plainest way to read the text. Paul is clearly talking about men in general at the start of verse 3, and there's no sign of a switch. He doesn't alert us to that midway through that verse to say, I'm narrowing it down now to marriage. That doesn't mean he's saying there that all women should submit to all men. That simply isn't true. But there is a general sense in which God has distinguished men and women and given us different roles in a mission we share over his creation. So I found the Australian scholar Claire Smith very helpful here. I'm fairly persuaded by her digging into the text carefully that Paul is talking about men and women as a whole in this passage. There's a pattern of leadership here that clearly goes beyond marriage, one that you see most clearly in the church and which isn't simply arbitrary. It's connected with how and why we're made, 
Notice how the arguments Paul uses in verse 12 are general arguments. They go back to creation and to childbirth. It's about mothers and sons there, just as much as it's about husbands and wives. It seems like he has something broader in mind than just our relationships within marriage. Now, it's true that because of whatever was happening in Corinth, his application is a fairly marriage-focused one, as best as we can work out. There's a problem flaring up in this church over the specific issue of head coverings. And although we can't tell from the text exactly what sort of covering he's talking about, what they looked like, we can tell a fair bit about what they meant. They seem to be a sign of modesty and respect worn by married women. Long flowing hair in that culture was a sign of sexual availability. Controlled or covered hair spoke of a different kind of beauty, a different kind of femininity, a sign of dignity and self-control and commitment to your husband. But do you see already how even within Paul's text, there's a basic theology which is true for all men and all women, and then an application which we assume is more directed towards certain married women. It's another pointer that the fundamental message is a lot deeper than just what some people put on their heads. It's about honoring our maleness and femaleness, not simply about wives honoring their husbands. In fact, we could probably push that a little bit further and say that in Paul's worldview, there's maybe not such a sharp distinction between those two categories, men and women and husbands and wives, as there is in our culture. Clearly, most of the time, the Greek-speaking world got on just fine with a bit of ambiguity in the language. You can normally tell from context who you're talking about, but it was fine to address all men and husbands as one homogenous group. It was fine to talk to all women along with wives. Paul could just assume marriage as the normal pattern, and people were perfectly happy with that. It wasn't in any way offensive, even though clearly he's very aware there will be widows and single people like himself listening in. He's spoken directly to them already, hasn't he? And all of that means, once again, that we just don't want to be too narrow in our application here. This should have something to say to all of us and there's not just one relationship it's governing. Number three, church or world. And this is maybe the trickiest one. You would never know it from a lot of sermons, but the simple truth is we cannot know with absolute certainty what setting Paul has in mind here. Is this about our lives together in a narrow sense, in a formal church service, or in the broad sense, as we meet with our Christian brothers and sisters and live our Christian lives out in the world. What we know from the text is that Paul is clearly deeply concerned about what we express to each other and to the world when we worship. So for both men and women, he talks about what we do when we pray and when we prophesy. And later on in the letter, we'll come back to what those mean. But clearly, 
Both belong to worship and are to do with how we bring God's truth to bear in each other's lives. But it's only an assumption and a fairly big one at that, that what he's talking about here is public gathered church worship. It's by far the dominant assumption today amongst evangelicals, but up until the sexual revolution, that was not the universal way to read this chapter. And it's worth at least bearing in mind that there are some good reasons to question it. Remember that Paul has already been talking a lot about other settings for fellowship. We've had a long section just before this dealing with the significance of what happens when we eat around a table in each other's homes. Formal church, the whole congregation in one big home, is not the only place that Christians meet and pray. And notice how right after this passage, there's a clear indication that we're talking about something different. Verse 17, in the following, I don't commend you, because when you come together, it's not for good. And he goes on to talk about the Lord's Supper, what clearly is a formal gathered thing, the whole church family. And then in chapter 14, he seems to say something rather different about what women should do in church. Here, he's implying that it's normal for women to take part in praying and prophesying. There, he says that in church, women shouldn't talk, at least not up front. And if we assume Paul doesn't just contradict himself, there are all sorts of different ways that we might understand him there. The classic complementarian view amongst evangelicals like us, tends to be that he's talking here and there about different kinds of speech, but both in church. Prayer and prophecy here are fine, but authoritative speaking, which people think he's talking about in chapter 14, that's a different thing. And I think there's a lot of strengths to that view, but we need to be honest about at least one thing. It is a very, very new way of reading this passage. One author said he couldn't find it in any written work of any theologian or preacher prior to 1962. Instead, one of the most common explanations was that in this first half of chapter 11, Paul is talking about worship in a different setting, in the privacy of our own homes, in prayer meetings, in less public gatherings. Now, what's the point of all that? Well, again, just that it tells us we have to be humble. Just because a particular argument is new doesn't mean that it's wrong. It would be a mistake, though, to limit our application of this passage to a narrow list of things that women are and aren't allowed to do in church. Church may not even be what Paul's talking about here. It's right to ask those questions, and it's right for the Bible to answer them, but Verse 5 is not a simple proof text on which we should build a list of jobs in church for women. I think this passage has much broader things to say about maleness and femaleness, about being human. And it's worth letting it speak into those broader areas of life, even if it's not going to win us any prizes from the world around us. And finally... Assumption number four, we cannot know with absolute certainty 
the answers to questions which may interest us, but didn't interest Paul. In other words, we have to be clear amongst ourselves about what is happening when we open up the Bible in church. Do we believe that God speaks to us as lecturer or as Lord? If he's speaking to us as a lecturer, then we have a right to information, don't we? We have a right to be educated and entertained, and there are all sorts of distracting questions that we could demand answers to. So verse 4, what exactly is prophecy? Do we do it in ENC? Verse 6, when does a covering count as a covering? I'm sure we can all agree it's time to get rid of those silly fascinator things you see at weddings. But what style of hat is appropriate? Verse 14, how long is too long for a man's hairstyle? Brothers, there were one or two of us whose wives wanted a word over lockdown. And I wish I could tell them the Bible had a clear guide, because frankly, anything that got us to the barber, for one or two of you, would have been an improvement. But it is just not the point, I'm afraid. There are all sorts of distracting questions like that that we could focus on and then just insist that our women slap a hat on their head and completely miss the point of the passage. Because when God speaks to us, it is not as lecturer. We don't have the right to demand answers to everything we want to know. He speaks to us as Lord, which means we need to listen to what this passage is about, not simply what we're interested in. Well, I've spent 25 minutes now clearing my throat, but I guess when there's a frog in your throat, it's better off cleared. How about then I have a stab at saying what this passage is about? And my suggestion is that we take this away as we think and pray for this next week and give it some time to sink into our hearts before we drill down into more of the detail next time. It's a passage, as we saw from the context, about laying down ourself and glorifying God, glorifying him by embracing and living out the relational order that he's put us in and he's made us for. God has made the world a certain way. He's made men and women a certain way. And the way the good God has made us is beautiful Ultimately, this is a passage about beauty and ugliness, glory and shame. Men and women have been created differently with a relational order that should be beautiful. It comes from God, it speaks about God, and it's part of his plan. And so as Christians, that difference and that ordering is something we should honor something we should be happy to express visibly. We are men and we are women, and we relate to each other as men and as women. We worship together as men and as women. We don't just leave behind who we are as if our bodies weren't really a part of the real us. They're always part of us, always part of how we relate, how we think and pray and worship. Now, it might not look the same expressing that difference and that ordering here in Edinburgh as it did then in Corinth, because to communicate the same thing in our culture 
It's going to take different outward behavior. But we do want to communicate it. We want to be conscious of our maleness and femaleness. And all that means, we want to celebrate it, embrace all of the cultural norms that go along with it. Not only when we worship, but certainly then, above all, because as we worship, the cosmos watches, angels and men, and in a thousand little ways, we're telling them what we believe about the God we love. So let's pray then, as we allow that to sink in, that God would help us to love what he calls good and not be ashamed of it. And let's pray that he would help us over these next few weeks to embrace all that he has to say in a way that is deep and joyful and full of desire to see Christ lifted high. Let's bow our heads. Loving Father, we praise you for the way we were made, filled as human beings, male and female, with purpose and glory and meaning. We thank you for the lives you've given us, lives that reflect the glory of the God we love and the glory of this creation that you crowned with mankind. We thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ, our firstborn, our head, who shows us in his human nature the full beauty of what you've called us to be. Perfect headship, perfect submission, perfect love. Help us, we pray, to love what we see in him And as we're restored by your grace into his image, help us bring love and praise and glory to you, our good and kind Father. Amen.